Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Since the start of the war in Ukraine, more than 280,000 Ukrainians have resettled in the United States. Elected officials here in Connecticut have shown their support for Ukraine. Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal has traveled several times since the start of the war to meet with President Volodymyr Zelensky. Blumenthal has recently introduced a Senate resolution to address the threat Russia poses. And some Connecticut residents have even gone to Ukraine to do what they can to help. In February, we spoke with Larissa Bobby. She's a Ukrainian-American that grew up in Manchester, Connecticut. She lives in Kyiv, Ukraine, working as a writer and translator. In her newsletter, A Kind of Refugee, she writes about her life living in a war zone. Larissa returned to Connecticut for a brief visit in July to see family and friends, and she spoke to us about what her life looks like living in Ukraine nearly a year and a half after the war first began. Well, Larissa, thank you so much for being back here with us and in person today. It's a pleasure to have you on. You know, it's been actually six months, really, since we've last had this conversation about your experience in Ukraine, and now you're back here in Connecticut in the United States. You know, what was your trip like, and how have you been spending your time here? Well, it's fantastic to be here in the studio with you, Catherine. Um, It is nourishing to be able to see my family and my old friends. Um, The last time I was in the United States was almost a year ago, and I was very much in a kind of blinders on the side (laughs) of my face, you know, full out trying to tell people about the war in Ukraine and rally support. And while those things have become no less important to me, um, just by the sheer duration uh, that the war has been going on for more than a year and a half now, a human being also needs to kind of make space for those things that make you a human being, um, including your own history. And so it's it is really important for me to kind of be in the place uh, where I grew up and with people that I have really long, many year long relationships. And and you, I think you just painted such a great picture of having to nourish yourself in order to educate or inform people, which which is what you do with your blog or your newsletter, A Kind of Refugee. And, And with the news cycle moving so fast and you being there in person, I think you have a very different view on on the situation on the ground, right, versus, you know, what we hear or what we see in the headlines. You know, how have you seen attention to what's happening in Ukraine change and evolve from, like you mentioned, last year to to this moment? Um, I think the thing that a person who's never experienced living in a war zone or a zone of upheaval, even where, you know, there are serious protests going on or something, um, it's hard to imagine or really, like, have this understanding that 
mm, everyday life and violence exist side by side. So, like, I live in Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, and there's a lot of very normal-looking life. And it persists up until that second that a Russian missile explodes and shatters a building and kills somebody. Because of, um, I think, you know, in the first maybe even year uh, that after Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, it was so shocking that, in a sense, people around the world were shocked. And even if they were at a distance from the violence, they were really engaged somehow. Um, and there's only so long that you can feel something if all you're looking at is flat news, 2D images, and a journalistic, um, how to say, rendition of, of events. And so whereas the people in Ukraine feel very strongly every single day, every single second, uh, the urgency that we need this war to end and there's only one way to end it, which is with Ukraine's victory um, and making it impossible for Russia to continue attacking Ukraine. People around the world don't, I find that if their everyday lives are more or less the same, like it's, it's remarkable to me how unchanged Manchester, Connecticut and the United States are um, after this year and a half, whereas I'm transformed. Um, Ukraine has transformed, and we've lost so many people. And you're from Manchester, Connecticut, and you just mentioned that you know it hasn't changed here, but you've changed. So when you come back to Manchester, when you come back to Connecticut, what do you bring with you? You know, what are you seeing that's different, even though physically what you're seeing may not have changed. I function at a different speed, um, for sure, because in a sense, I have adapted to to living in a country at war and to living in conditions that are absolutely unpredictable. And so there's a way that like I see opportunity in my conditions, even if it's the opportunity to do the laundry. Like, um, you know, I see something and I do it immediately, which I didn't live that way before. And I see in the people around me, again, because their routines are stable, um, they can rely a lot more on even imagining that the next day is going to be more or less how they expect it to be. Whereas I just don't function that way. I don't think that way anymore. Well, and then you mentioned earlier, too, that People are not responding to the same level of urgency. You know, there was that galvanization at the beginning, but like many issues, it tapers off. Do you think it's because they don't feel the threat that Russia is posing, or you know, what what goes through your mind when you're when you're you know you're literally in the trenches, you're on the ground, but life kind of moves on elsewhere in the in the world, really. I think it's alarming that people don't see the threat. Uh, that Russia is posing to the world. Um, not too long ago, there was a long-awaited NATO summit uh, in Vilnius in the beginning of July. And Ukrainians really were hoping, um, Ukrainians were hoping, but the Ukrainian presidential administration and diplomats had been working really, really hard for months to, you know, 
with public statements, with lots of private conversations with leaders all over the world um, to get some kind of a firm statement that NATO wants Ukraine to be a member. Um, and this would be a great political decision, first and foremost. It's a political decision that comes with, you know, a, a promise, a uh, defense promise, but already, like, it would change the relationship between NATO and Russia and Ukraine around the world. And the result of the NATO summit was uh, they did form a special council, like a NATO-Ukraine council. They did decide that, you know, Ukraine can have a more simplified bureaucratic procedure to join the alliance at some point. And this lack of decisiveness um, really it disappointed Ukrainians tremendously, but it also shows this way that people who don't feel directly threatened by Russia's attack and Russia's violations. Like, I mean, there, there have been so many violations already that have happened uh, of international law, of the law of war, um, war crimes, genocide. Um, basically, you know, you had asked about the news cycle. Um, also, there was this event that happened. The news kind of decided to not take a clear position, but say, well, we're not sure who blew up the dam. We're going to take some time to investigate. Um, whereas certain uh, I guess you could say analysts, public public intellectuals that I very much agree with, you know, made the point that this really was a um, how to say this was a certain kind of an action by Russia that was not only intended to destroy massive swaths of Ukrainian land and make it unlivable and Ukrainian people and Ukrainian livelihoods um, and wildlife. <laughs> and But it was also a test to see how the world would respond to such an audacious and absolute violation. And the world was kind of like, yeah, We'll take our time and, and look at it. And so this is when I said I was alarmed um, by the way that people are not seeing the threat that Russia poses. It's it's this. It's that, like, things keep happening that people are – they're very able to, to kind of turn away from. And it's just one more ugly story in your news feed and you can control your news feed and keep living your life. Um, but at some point, there is going to be a line – when it's not in your newsfeed and it's in your sky. Well, I'm curious because you, there's so much frustration that you're feeling, right? Yeah. Where in, either it's a slow process or there's no process at all. And I have spoken with people who have mentioned, oh, we need more stories about humans. What happens to humans? It will get people to care. But at the same time, we are getting a lot of stories about what's happening to the to Ukrainians. And yet this is kind of what you just what you just described is what we're seeing. So this is a big question, but what do you think will get people to respond when, you know, on the one hand, we are giving you stories about humans. And on the other hand, you're saying, you know, we need more. Mm hmm. Um, I have this conversation with lots of people. Um, it's a question I get a lot. What does caring look like <laughs> is what it is. 
Um, obviously, you're a journalist. You work from the side that shares people's stories with a large audience. Um, I'm also here as a person who's sharing a story with a large audience. Um, but I get frustrated when, like, the responses I get from from, you know, specific people they often either it will be like an instant kind of pity commiseration. Oh, that's so terrible. Um, or like a what can I do? You tell me what I can do to help. And what I keep urging people to do is that you have to make the effort to think like from where from where you are, because you know, different people can do different things. I've met several um, U.S. Army vets in the past several months who have no connection to Ukraine whatsoever, but they have their military experience. They saw what was going on in Ukraine a year ago. And, you know, these are separate people, completely unrelated to each other, but they all made the same decision that, like, this is a genocide. The world is not going to step up to help, and I'm going to physically get on a plane and go to Ukraine and figure out what I can do. So, I mean, that's like, that's what they can do. Obviously, if you don't have military experience, there's going to be something else you can do. Some people have more money to share. Some people have organizational talents. But to come back to the original question is like, what I'm missing from people is more like curiosity, you know, like when people, I, you know, I have friends and, and family in the States, uh, not all of them, but, you know, some of them. And it's like they, maybe they're not like rah, rah, rah Ukraine on an, you know, kind of a showy way, but they ask me very specific questions. You know, what's it like when this happens? What, um, shoot, what's a good question? I don't know. Even just like asking me about my experience of, you know, what it feels like when there are things exploding outside my window. And, through them offering like what they actually need to know there's a there's a genuineness and and it creates this connection and i don't i'm not one of these people how to say obviously i'm grateful for every bit of support that you know anyone wants to offer to ukraine i have more trust for a person maybe who's a community activist or who is watching the situation in taiwan in relation to what's happening in ukraine and we can have a conversation about that um, and find common basis, that's more important to me than your blue and yellow flag. Well, and you mentioned the military, and, and last month you wrote about spending a week translating for an American instructor training the Ukrainian military. Can you talk about that experience? You know, especially with what you just shared, you know, you feel this connection with somebody who who has no connection with Ukraine, with Ukraine, but wants to come and help, you know, did that change sort of your mindset? Or, you know, what was that experience like for you? It definitely made me see something in America that I that I hadn't really paid much attention before. I definitely changed my understanding of the American military um, in the sense that before it was very something kind of abstract. It was, you know, people join this force, they fight wars for American interests, off of American soil, often questionable. Um, and I understood how much the American military is made up of different kinds of, of people. Um, this particular experience of translating for training Ukrainian military was profoundly transformative for me. Uh, maybe in part because I, it was something I had 
dreamed of doing maybe for the past year because I, I do work as a translator. I've worked as a translator for over a decade in various capacities. And so it was like, oh, this is a concrete way I can help the Ukrainian war effort. Um, but when it actually came down to it, you know, and this instructor is like, so have you ever translated a tactical medicine course before? And I said, nope. <laughs> um, and so I had to, you know, I like I had to study. He sent me videos of, you know, various kinds of tourniquets and bandages. And I had to figure out how to say all these things in two languages. Um, and so as I was translating the actual course, I was also learning what tactical medicine is. Um, and the the atmosphere that he creates in his classes is really just bringing people's attention back to the life and death urgency of being on the front line. And so we worked with a couple of groups who were completely fresh recruits, and they were really no different than me. That was also very um, humbling, you know, that, that some of these guys really had no more experience handling a rifle than I do no idea, you know, what, how to put on a tourniquet and they have to learn how to do this in 30 seconds or less because otherwise you will bleed to death. And, you know, just spending a week in this constant repetition that like everything you do, somebody's life depends on it. But I also feel like as a human being, you mentioned where is the line earlier and there's only so much you can take but you so you have to nourish yourself and take care of yourself i want to do a quick pivot here because mm -hmm. you know you're a writer i want to ask about your thoughts in terms of the death of the ukrainian novelist uh, victoria amelina um, for our listeners who might not know you know she was injured and died because of an attack and she was just having dinner at a at a pizza restaurant and i I'm assuming this is one of so many stories that you hear. Did it hit different? Did it, you know, what was going through your mind when you first heard of that? Yeah, um, it hit. <laughs> it definitely hit home. So she was critically injured in a Russian missile attack on a pizza restaurant in Kramatorsk. As you mentioned, Kramatorsk is a city in the east. And it's kind of a hub uh, as far as it's like the last kind of big major city before the front. And so it's a place where, you know, a lot of volunteers will come to, you know, before heading out to points further in the front. It's a place where military personnel will come back to, you know, have a break. Um, and so there was nothing accidental or arbitrary in that missile strike. In that same missile strike, uh, an American Marine who was fighting in the International Brigades was killed along with uh, teenage twins. And I think there was another teenager killed. So it was very much um, – this is just to illustrate, again, the cruelty with which Russia is waging this war. And it's, it's intentional. Um, I want to just bring that back. I never met her personally. Um, I was hoping to. She was just doing her work. She was a writer. She was interested in where she came from, who her fellow Ukrainians are. So very early on, she trained to become a war crimes investigator and basically traveled around Ukraine interviewing people and listening to stories of unspeakable brutality that they had lived through. And so it's like I was sort of following. I knew what she was doing somewhere, you know, off off on the periphery. And it was just something that, you know, was very humbling to me, you know, because it's a person that, like, I could be doing that theoretically, right? Um, and just to know 
yeah, like when you see how how other people live, it it's very moving. And I mean, you just it's it's hard to not hear the admiration you have for her. Is there something that you want our listeners to know about her work or is there a way to carry on, you know, what she was doing? Not to put the burden on any one person, but clearly you have such such love for her. You know, is there something that you would like to share with our listeners? Um, I think I would like to share a poem that she wrote uh, while she was doing her war crimes investigation work. And it is untitled. In this strange city, only the women testify. One tells me about the child that disappeared. Two talk about people tortured in the basement. Three say they didn't hear about the rapes and avert their eyes. Four talk about screams coming from the headquarters. Five about people shot in their yards. Six speak, but it doesn't make any sense. Seven are still counting their food reserves out loud. Eight say I'm lying and that justice does not exist. Nine talk amongst themselves on the way to the cemetery. I'm going there too for I already know everyone in this city, and all of its dead are my dead, and all the survivors are my sisters. Ten talk about the man who survived. He, too, was detained by them. He can testify about the torturers. I knock on his door, but his neighbor comes out. She answers for him. It only seems like he survived. Go and talk to the women. You can find that poem by Victoria Amelina on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. We're listening back to my conversation with Larissa Bobby, a writer and translator from Manchester, Connecticut, who is now living in Ukraine. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is Where We Live. I'm Catherine Shen. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the Go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Coming up, Anna Kobalars, a resident of Berlin, Connecticut, talks to us about the Ukrainian organization City of Goodness, an orphanage and family center where she works. Now, we're talking with Connecticut native Larissa Bobby, who has lived in Ukraine since 2005. She's a writer, translator, and dancer. Through performing arts, she's taught movement and rehabilitation classes to soldiers and civilians. I asked her what that work looks like today. 
Yeah, I've been dancing since I was a kid, and in, I've done lots of different kinds of dancing in Ukraine over the the nearly two decades that I've been there. Um, and I have been teaching movement classes. Uh, it's something that I have started to do less frequently, not because there's not a need for it, um, but because a person has limitations <laughs> to what, how much they can do. Um, and what I've more recently, um, no, I mean, there's, I, I can explain. That's okay. <laughs> Take your time. <laughs> um, you know, crap. The, the need for rehabilitation, both for Ukrainian soldiers, people in the armed forces, and Ukrainian citizens and civilians and anybody who has been living through this war is enormous. It will only continue to grow and it will be, it will last for years decades, generations. Um, that problem is not going anywhere. The thing that I keep coming back to, and I have been for, you know, almost as long as I've been inside of this uh, full-scale Russian attack on Ukraine, the thing that is most urgent is to end the war. And so there how to say there are just so many things that need to be done and one of the ways that i feel is important and is also something very much that that i can do um, and that i'm drawn to do is speaking writing translating um in a way that maybe can reach some people to see more clearly what is happening and I think there is a need for work in the discursive sphere. So um, one of the things that I'm also trying to do, which is, hasn't happened yet, is to relaunch an English language magazine uh, about Ukraine, from Ukraine, about Ukrainian culture and politics. Um, and a lot of my energy has been going more into working with words. And so that means less in terms of helping people rehabilitate. But obviously, if there were five of me or even three of me, um, you know, it would be, it should be a full-time job. <laughs> I'm shake. I'm nodding my head. No one can see that, but you can see me. I'm nodding my head because you are absolutely doing so much. And it, it relates to my next question. I want to ask you, you know, you're doing all of this with words and beyond. I want to ask you, where do you see the need for more support, bo both from the government side and from the people side? Because we learned that based on the Department of Defense, the U.S. has provided billions in security assistance to Ukraine, and President Joe Biden has condemned the Russian invasion. He has called Vladimir Putin a war criminal. And you know, as you know, many people here in the United States have shown their support in you know in whatever way they can. And as we talked about earlier, displaying a Ukrainian flag. But where do you see there is more need for? for that urgency, that support from both the government side and from people? I think this is the hardest thing to put into words, actually. Um, it has to do with, you know, feeling, not as a feeling, but like genuinely realizing the reality of what is happening. Um, I don't want each of you to have to lose 
so many of your close friends, you know, um, hundreds of thousands of your compatriots in the course of a year to be able to understand that this is real and it has to stop. Um, I think everything that the U.S. government has been doing, I think that, you know, public statements that President Biden has been making, I think it's great. Um, I don't have I don't have anything to criticize as far as what people are doing. Your Ukrainian flags in your windows are beautiful. <laughs> like I appreciate it. Um, but the thing also that like has happened in Ukraine that Ukrainians have been forced to see is to understand that like the life of their nation, the fact if their nation is going to be here tomorrow, or not, it depends on them and on each one of them. Um, some critical mass of Ukrainians have understood this. Not all Ukrainians understand this, but you know enough Ukrainians have understood this that they're fighting and staking their lives and giving everything they have and more in order for Ukraine to survive and Ukraine for Ukraine to persist. With mm-hmm. what you're saying too, I, I I'm wondering what do you think is impacting the level of involvement in the war by other Western countries? I'm sure this is something you've thought of slash considered. <laughs> um. I do think people understand that something very serious is at stake. I don't think they understand maybe like the degree of urgency. Um, you know, again, like these individual American vets that I've met, like they are fighting. I mean, they're American patriots, first of all. And so what they're doing in by helping Ukraine is really in American interests um, so that our democracy can survive because obviously, you know, every inch of territory that we cede to Russia, and it's not because it's Russia. It's because of the way that Russia is operating. It's not because Russians are bad somehow innately. What Russians are doing is absolutely unconscionable. It's easy to believe, to want to believe that the Russian people that are supporting the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and it's a vast majority of the population, um, it's not just one Putin. You know, people here want to believe that they're just, I don't know, brainwashed or they're you know, they're, they're just being oppressed. Really, you know, they, they would like everything to be democratic, but, you know, they're, they're just, they, they can't speak up because they're afraid or something. Um, but it's too, you know, at this point, like, you have to see <laughs> the reality of the war. And so not speaking up, it doesn't matter if you're afraid, like, for whatever reason. I think in Russia proper, it's too late because of what has happened in its government for years and decades. And so this is another thing to kind of remind Americans is that like now is the moment where you have to be aware of what's going on around you in your own political life. Um, I mean, there's it's gotten very hairy in the sense that people, you know, speak through what they see in the Internet. There's, you know, a lot less neighbor to neighbor communication and, and a lot of just, you know, people have information brought to them in their homes and then they spout it out. And and that's that's a big change in our political discourse. Um, And with what you're saying, do you feel like 
those people responsible for this violence, for this attack, will ever be held accountable for what they've done to Ukraine? You know, what does that accountability look like to you? It depends. Um, I think here, actually, to a large extent, it depends on the West, because obviously Ukraine, from the beginning, <laughs> we had mentioned, you know, uh, Victoria Malina was doing war crimes investigations. She's not one, uh, but she's part of a large community of people who immediately, you know, journalists, for example, um, they realize that it's not enough just to write stories, but they studied, you know, international law. And there are certain ways that you have to write um, testimony so that it will be legitimate evidence in court. And so Ukrainians have this in mind. They're collecting war crimes testimony. They're collecting evidence. Um, but think of Nuremberg, right? Like, like there's there has to be in order, you know, the this war is being waged on a larger scale. It may be happening on Ukrainian territory, but it is absolutely a world order, world scale war in that sense. Um, so will Russia be held accountable? It depends on whether, you know, NATO countries, whether the U.S. decides that um, Russia needs to be overcome in this war, or are they? Are we still going to try to find some way to negotiate? Because basically, any kind of negotiations are going to legitimize not only Russia's power in the world, but it's going to legitimize every single atrocity that Russia has committed over the past year and a half. Well, I know we've gone through a lot in this short conversation, and I, I do want to touch on because you're here in Connecticut, you grew up here, you have family here. When are you going to return to Ukraine? And when people ask you why you return to Ukraine to continue to do your work there, how do you respond? You know, what goes through your mind when you get asked that question? Um, I'm going back to Ukraine in a couple of weeks. And for me, there's no question. Uh, you know, even though I did grow up in Connecticut, uh, I've been living in Ukraine since 2005, and it's very much my home. Uh, it's my home kind of in a practical sense um, and very much in a heart sense. Uh, my grandparents were all from Ukraine. So, like, even if the individual story, how I ended up there is another long story, like, the right now of it is that this is my home. I have to defend it um, because I can't rely on someone else to defend what is most important to me. And I think that's a principle that anyone can can apply to themselves too. We've got about two minutes le left here, but I want to ask, what do you hope our listeners take away from this conversation that we're having right now? I hope that you can imagine the Ukrainian people who are fighting in Ukraine, who are defending their country, who live in a place where you never know um, when a Russian missile might arrive and explode, God forbid, in your bedroom, but nearby. Um, they're just, they're the same kind of people as you. And they have a homeland. I think a lot of them didn't necessarily feel a strong connection to their country or their government. It was complicated. Um, but 
Russia's full-scale invasion has forced Ukrainians really to clarify who they are, what they stand for, and I wish for you to maybe seeing what's happening halfway around the world, ask yourself some questions um, so that it doesn't have to come to missiles falling in your backyard. That was Larissa Bobby. She is a writer and translator from Manchester, Connecticut, now living in Ukraine and aiding the war effort. You can find a link to her newsletter, A Kind of Refugee, on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Coming up next, we hear from a resident of Berlin, Connecticut, who is working to provide safety and shelter for women, children, and animals displaced by the war. This is Where We Live. I'm Catherine Shen. Stay with us. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Today, we're talking to residents of Connecticut that are aiding the war effort in Ukraine. The war has meant more Ukrainian children are in need, many without homes and parents to care for them. Joining us now is Anna Kobalars, a resident of Berlin, Connecticut. Anna is very active within her own Polish community in the state. And after a single visit to the City of Goodness Project, which is a shelter for women and children in Ukraine, She's gone back more than a dozen times since the start of the war to raise money and care for children living there. She's the president of the nonprofit Community Help and is currently raising money for the City of Goodness Project in Ukraine. I started our conversation by asking her about her first visit. When I arrived there, the reason why, because we were um, going to support them with the generator they needed because of the power outrage. And um, I thought I go and I wait when the um, generator is going to be delivery. Maybe I will spend there and don't don't forget as it's a war is like a going through from Poland to Ukraine traveling is is kind of like a something. So I'm thinking I probably will stay maybe two three days. And you hear all the time on the news is like a war and bombing and and all of kind of a situation. Not easy to adjust, but I still go in there and with the, with the thought I will stay there a few days and end up staying two weeks. And you're from Berlin, Connecticut. Can you talk about how stark that experience was? Now, you just mentioned you thought you were going to be there for two, three days and, and you end up staying there for two weeks and you've actually been in and out of Ukraine and Connecticut over the last couple of years, right? Yes, since uh, since uh, February, since February last year, and uh, till now, I uh, crossed the border, Ukrainian border, 12 times, going back and forth, with the humanitarian um, support, with the, um, like, um, taking care of, I, I, I um, for the first time, when I went and saw children, in the city of goodness, I, I just fall in love with this place, with those children. And I thought to myself, I cannot just, you know, just say bye. I told them I will come back. And a few weeks later, I came back. <laughs> and then again and again and again. So I just took it very emotional. And there was clearly a need for an organization like this for these children. And you've been there since the Russian invasion happened and up until now. 
Has there been a bigger need to have this kind of organization since the start of the war? Yes, because uh, like I was mentioned before, um, this place uh, takes children, orphans, dogs, like it's a place for many who needs uh, shelter. And we support City of Goodness from the beginning, like <laughs> this generator before we sent uh, for, we knew 67 uh, orphans are coming, so we send them like a truck with the uh, pillows, with the, um, um, all of kind of stuff, medication, with the blankets, uh, just before I arrived there. So we send the support. And uh, over summer, we sent last year, we sent 22 pallets to the City of Goodness. And also, I raised uh, money to support building two orphanages, rehabilitation center. And um, for those kids, it's, it's hard because more the, more um, more kids are coming, more like um, mothers with the uh, small kids are coming, and we have a, a place for them to stay. And can you describe what that place looks like? You know, what does the community look like? You know, you mentioned this is a shelter primarily for mothers and children and, and animals, actually. Uh, what is it like to be there? It's like a one big family. Like we understand uh, the situation, and um, but um, Marta, the founder of the City of Goodness, when I asked her, like, uh, what do you think about this place, and she said, this this place have to be the example for other places, and we have to give our children like a normal, um, normal. That's like something impossible during the war to give a normal life but a childhood but that's what we are trying to do so right and and you also talked about there's mothers and children and are there any children in that organization who don't have parental figures or do they look for parental figures within the organization they, um, some kids there are orphans and so far Maybe not uh, to, up to today, but uh, I think that um, was like a, probably fifty of of uh, kids adopted. And can you talk about what some of these children and families have been through before arriving to the shelter? You know, a lot of them have now lived a lot of their lives among war, among mm-hmm. trauma, and. Um, some spend time in shelters or basements to to stay safe during this wartime. You know, mm-hmm. how are they? How are they doing? And what was it like for them? There is a many, many, many different stories in the city of goodness. Every um, every mom who came with a child, what children have a story to to tell. Our children uh, um, like arriving from different part of the war zones and they are welcome in a city of goodness and um, I remember I can uh, share with you the story about two little boys so we came, uh, we brought to the city of goodness and uh, the uh, father died from um, the explosion of the landmine and uh, mother couldn't uh, she was just like a devastated so she asked to uh, leave her two boys in the city of goodness for some times and uh, me and Marta we went to get those little boys, little boys about a few months and uh, the other maybe three years old 
and we have no like a car seats. We were not prepared. We just went there uh, to the village and we took those little boys and I was holding in my arms one of them and I was thinking how terrible the situation is. They didn't understand why they are sitting with me in a car. They look at me like a completely stranger, but they were just quiet and some stories very sad. I don't think a lot about why I'm doing this. It's just like so normal, like something so I know I have to do it. So I don't have any question in my mind if I should, I shouldn't, and why I'm doing that. That's for sure. Always like I look at uh, my mission uh, is something so I I um, make the mind on the very beginning and I just keep going. And I know we kind of talked a little bit about it earlier, but what attracts you to keep coming back to this organization and going back to Ukraine, especially during wartime? You know, you you share with us that you cross the border 12 times and it mm-hmm. sounds like you're going to continue crossing those borders. Yes. And the tra- uh, traveling um, to explain maybe to just give an idea how it looks is not easy because you it takes uh, all day long for me to go back and uh, sometimes even longer to to uh, um, to to uh, come back from a city of goodness through the border and going back to Poland because that's how I go. Uh, so what uh, attracts me to go back and forward um, is I think that my um, commitment with those kids, the smiling faces, like uh, they they know when I, when I come, I always bring them some uh, uh, stuff with me, toys or something like uh, I was just showing you this uh, card for a kid who needs a uh, disabled kid who needs to have you know uh, something so she can uh, be taken outside with for a rehabilitation center so it's always something so I know that if when I come then I work before I come to have some list uh, the items on the list uh, happen so recently we were working on a um, um, medical beds to get for a city of goodness for a rehabilitation center and a hospice. And uh, we have uh, someone who pledged that uh, to buy those beds and there was expensive stuff. So we're talking about it's not like something. So uh, we have to um, really, you know. And while you continue to do this work and you continue to take care of the children and and uh, help expand the organization. Because the war is still ongoing, this conversation is still ongoing, what, would, what do you foresee to be the biggest challenges when it comes to wanting and needing to take care of these children? Is it the medical supplies? Is it the schooling? Or what would you say is the biggest challenge? Um, I think that medical is very important for those children because... Um, I think that um, many, if not all of those kids over there and uh, during the war time um, develop uh, PTSD and like all this mental psychological help is needed. 
for them. I'm not even talking about like a physical um, or rehabilitation for those uh, sick kids who have other problems. Are they able to get mental health support? Is that something that's available now or is it something, I mean, clearly there's a need for it. Yeah, in a city of goodness it is, but it, it will be more. It will be much more needed. And one last question is, what do you hope our listeners can take away from this conversation? Um, The war is still there in Ukraine, and um, children need support. They need our support because they're not able just to do everything by themselves. Like uh, even people in the city of goodness, Marta, she needs support of us. Well, thank you so much, Anna, for being here with us today and sharing your story. It's a very important experience to uh, to share with our listeners. Thank you for having me. That was Anna Kobalars, a resident of Berlin, Connecticut, and also president of the nonprofit community Help. She's raising money for the City of Goodness Project in Ukraine, and she's also the director of the humanitarian mission of the Polish American Foundation of Connecticut. We'll have links at ctpublic.org slash where we live. I'm Captain Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>